You're listening to a Stranger Cast at thestranger.com. Hey, it's Wednesday, September 4th, and I'm Eli Sanders, and this is Blabbermouth, the Stranger Podcast in which we talk about what's going on this week. We will talk about hurricanes and how they're getting worse. We will talk about Donald Trump and how he's getting worse as if that were possible. It is. And then we will talk about Brexit, the constitutional crisis in Britain, and what it can teach us about what's going on with American democracy here at home. After that, Katie Herzog talks about a cancel controversy over a movie called Adam. This involves trans activists, a trans character in a film, and different beliefs about what's dangerous to depict on screen. And then finally, Jasmine Kaimig and Charles Mudady are here to talk about the Obama's provocative new Netflix documentary, American Factory. It's great, and we'll talk about it. But first, Donald Trump and the Hurricanes. Good morning, Rich. Good morning, Eli. You have worn the Wednesday shirt, I see. That's right. Red checkered tartan plaid. Me too. Dan, not on the program. At least shirt-wise. Oh, yeah. You guys are both wearing your bro shirts or whatever. Yeah. Um, I hope you don't feel too excluded. I'm wearing my Wednesday underpants. I feel (laughs) Um, feel right on fleek or whatever the fucking kids said until they heard me say it, at which point they probably stopped. (laughs) Hurricane Dorian is still churning along on the eastern seaboard and freaking everyone out, rightly so. It's done a lot of damage in the Bahamas. And New York Times columnist David Leonhardt points out that hurricanes are getting worse and that this is attributable to global warming and it's not controversial, but we're not talking about that. No, what we're talking about is how we all hope it's a direct hit on (laughs) Mar-a-Lago. And Marianne Williamson has assured us that if we just think and pray and hope hard enough, it'll go away. Maybe back to the Bahamas where they didn't think or hope or pray hard enough. Has she weighed in on this or are we just anti-Williamson? No, she has weighed in on this. Oh, my God. If we think and hope and pray. She's with Pat Robertson on the hurricane? Yes. Oh, my God. Now that it hasn't hit Mar-a-Lago, though, we do have some mental space to process this very good point, which you should absorb and maybe share with your climate change fence-sitting relatives and neighbors. The New York Times' David Leonhardt writes, The frequency of severe hurricanes in the Atlantic Ocean has roughly doubled over the last two decades, and climate change appears to be the reason. Yet much of the conversation about Hurricane Dorian, including most media coverage, ignores climate change. So... Put that in uh, your mind and in your conversations with your relatives if they're not so sure about that whole climate change thing. They never – it won't work. You're going to be able to shout it at your relatives while they're drowning in their living rooms and they're still not – they'll be stranded on their roof and they'll be like, the New York Times – you mean the failing New York Times? Fake news. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I wonder who is offering that posture as a role model. Oh, look, the president. Oh, gosh, here we go. Who spent the weekend tweeting about the hurricane, but not really doing much else except golfing. 120 tweets. And 
those of us who you know are like to read about World War II for the first time ever, a president of the United States congratulated Poland on the Nazi invasion. <laughs> right. While the while the hurricane was bearing down on the East Coast, while he was on the golf course, it just seems like he gets worse and nothing changes, which is kind of the story week after the week. So let's talk about something else. Ah! Did you have something that you needed well, to say? Trump about was our- supposed to be at the 80th anniversary commemoration for the beginning of World War II, uh, 1939, and didn't go because he had to stay in the White House. Literally, that's what they said: stay at the White House and monitor Dorian's progress and be there to you know help out with FEMA and pass out fucking paper towels or whatever that is going to do. And so he didn't go to this 80th anniversary commemoration. He sent fucking Mike Pence, and then he went to his golf resort, one of his golf resorts. For two days and is playing golf during the commemoration of the 80th anniversary and while the hurricane is bearing down in the United States. Just another incident of if Obama did that, we would they would have impeached him for that. They would have impeached him for 400 other things that Trump had already done. And then there's the enriching himself, right? By forcing Pence to stay at his golf resort at the other side of Ireland during Pence's stop in Ireland. Also, uh, every time- I, I agreed with what Pence had to say about where Donald Trump's position was during the hurricane and during the commemoration speech, though. Did you hear that? Yes. He said that the president is where he needs to be. <laughs> <laughs> Which is nowhere. Which is nowhere near helming the crisis and the, with the hurricane has caused or near a bunch of foreign dignitaries right. where you can insult. All these foreign leaders that he just got locked in a room with him at the G7 were spared <laughs> being locked in a room with him at the 80th anniversary commemoration at the start of World War II. I guess Pence had a point. All right. So turning to something that's actually a little different week after week, the race to replace Donald Trump. We talked about this last week, but it seems even more clear this week. Politico notes that Biden, Warren and Sanders have all pulled ahead of the rest of the Democratic pack. And it's just really Biden, Warren, Sanders and everyone else. The next debate is coming up next Thursday, September 12th. It'll only be one debate. Thank you. And it looks like in the meantime, to get ready for the debate, Biden is forgetting how to use his mind. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. I've been just been noticing uh, over the course of a series of articles, Biden appears to be slipping somewhat. There was that one time last week or the week before where he confused um, New Hampshire with Vermont, um, which is not very good in a early state that you. Have you ever been to New Hampshire and Vermont? Uh, Actually, yes. I, and and there's very little distinction. I, I've been told that the Vermont is the one that's shaped like a V and then New Hampshire is the other one. But what's important is that you have to win New Hampshire if you want to have like early success with the, in the Democratic primary. And you'd think that the senator from Delaware would have known the difference between the two states <laughs> uh, and not the um, uh, podcaster from but, Missouri. But Biden is so far out in front that it really could go- come – but Biden is so far out in front that it really could come down next November to our dotard versus their dotard. Yeah, well, and that's the other. Speaking of dotardery, he's been running around with this uh, stolen valor, the stolen valor story that uh, turns out to be. Uh, 
kind of false, a, a mixture of three different war stories all in one. I mean, the classic then, old man storytelling, a mishmash of seven different things that kind of maybe happened wrapped into one story Trump that definitely did not happen. Trump doesn't, doesn't apologize. Reagan did that and never apologized. It's actually good on Biden that he's refused to apologize for mixing this shit up. And, you know, we were like, we assail Biden and we criticize Biden for the ego and the vanity of this campaign and how clearly exhausted he is and maybe out of it he is. But what do we do about the fact that a plurality of Democrats by a wide margin supports Biden? And is it just name recognition? Is it just Obama nostalgia? He has more African-American support than Booker, more African-American support than Harris. Like at a certain point, we have to move on from sort of criticizing and laughing at Biden to asking what is it that – what's the message being sent by the plurality, a wide plurality of Democratic primary voters that they want Biden. The security blanket, the return to normalcy, what is it and how does another candidate give them that and displace Biden? I think that point uh, that we have to start asking that question uh, is – sometime after March 10th. You know, <laughs> I think that we could, I think now is the time to criticize Biden and to say, well, you know, when Biden defended himself with this war story, for instance, you know, he said, um, my people know what I mean. Like, you know what I'm talking about. Give me the benefit of the doubt. I was just trying to um, uh, show the valor of these warriors. But he wasn't. He was also talking about how brave he was for going to Afghanistan in the first place. And he was talking, like, recycling his, like, the Vietnam line. Or, I was there. Like, my point is that I was there. Like, he... he He's doing the I don't know I don't want to call it Trumpian because I don't want to give it him is that, everything but yeah no it, it's very Trumpian and I think Dan's question I I have been thinking about that too and I think that is a very important question do we want to put a Trump up against Trump and is that more actually beneficial to the Democrats or do we want a contrast a Warren who doesn't make mistakes who's got plans who's got everything figured out there is a benefit as Trump has shown to lowering expectations so far that you can say anything on any given day and no one cares whether it's true or false your supporters don't care they take you seriously but not literally which is how Trump Continues and the to apologies thrive. thing. Clinton said this. You know, given a choice between someone who's strong and wrong and someone who's weak and right, mm-hmm. voters will go with strong and wrong as a gut reaction, a gut impulse. And Democrats have to stop cringing and apologizing all the time. I think it was really good that Biden didn't line up to eat the shit that was being served up to him after this gaffe. And it might have been a mistake for Warren to go to that uh, Native American conference and apologized the way she did because she'd already apologized and her apology was the news story coming out of that event and she said other things and rolled out other policies about native americans that were washed away by the media running with the apology and and reinforcing the narrative that there's nothing democrats aren't cringing and sorry for and grabbing their ankles about well i here i go again but i guess i'm not concerned uh, about the democratic field considering that and i know their national polls they all show all of the top five uh, Democratic nominees beating Trump by 10%. So it doesn't see, or 10 points. So it doesn't look like we have to settle for Biden this early. Um, and I don't want Biden. Don't confuse me <laughs> well, with people saying, who are for Biden. Yeah, I, well, I don't mean to. I just mean, like, do we have to swallow the Democratic version of Trump? Do we have to swallow politicians that 
basically bullshit and are strong manny and are and are loud because that's what wins in America. I don't think that's necessarily what wins in America, especially considering polls showing that you know people who don't do that uh, could beat Trump. And Obama won twice not doing that. Yeah, right. And that when what we need to do is get the co- Obama coalition back to defeat Trump, not necessarily just mirror Trump. A huge segment of the Obama coalition is right now lined up behind Biden. Well, but they're also in proportionate numbers lining up behind Bernie, uh, who has uh, his majority of his supporters are women. More supporters of uh, of more Bernie supporters are uh, African American than Warren supporters, for instance. So there's you know there's potential to line up that uh, coalition behind another candidate. Another thing about Warren, Biden, and Bernie, they are all over seventy, right? And so is Trump. And this, again, brings up what Politico this week is calling America the gerontocracy. We've had articles like this, you know, for the last many, many years. But the point still stands. America is old and getting older. Older people make up a larger share of the population and electorate than ever before, I believe. And our politicians are old and primary voters tend to skew old even in the democratic primary as a whole and it could be as simple as older voters don't mind watching someone stumble around and not get everything right every <laughs> once in a while because they them feel better about themselves exactly mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah and you wonder why everybody's cranky and forgetting <laughs> things all the time good point rich Uh, I also need your help on another issue that is as confusing to me as why does America continue to be run by old, 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 old people despite the evidence that maybe shouldn't be. And that is what the fuck is going on in Britain. Oh, sure. For this uh, segment, I'm going to uh, cast uh, sixth grade Rich in his uh, rend- or his a um, <laughs> his rendition uh, his- of the Cell Block Tango. <laughs> no, his uh, in his rehearsal for uh, his middle school production of Oliver Twist. Hello, <laughs> Eli. Want to know what's going on with Brexit? I'd like some more Brexit. Oh, <laughs> sir, can I have some more Brexit? <laughs> oh, tell, tell ya. Uh, there's a October 31st deadline. If uh, they don't make a deal, that is, the UK doesn't make a deal with uh, the EU uh, for uh, exiting uh, the, the the alliance. The uh, European Union. Right. Then the, with a trade agreement in place. The deal that they're trying to craft is one with a trade u- agreement in place and an Irish backstop. That will prevent the Troubles Part 2. Right. will prevent <laughs> the, the reestablishment of a hard border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. And it was the dismantling of that hard border that really contributed a great deal to the end of sectarian violence in Ireland. Mm-hmm. And if that hard border comes back, the violence will come back. Scotland may leave uh, the United Kingdom, may yeah. vote again to leave. And it is just – a, a symphony of self-inflicted wounds right now. <laughs> and the October 31st hard exit that, you know, crash out that Johnson is pushing and promised may not happen yeah. because Parliament, but the shit's show in Parliament over the last 48 hours. Yeah, what happened was, so Boris Johnson becomes the prime minister. And, and now, Boris Johnson, just to give people a shorthand, is like the British Trump. Yes, he's right? a mop-headed, but he's he's a mop-headed, but eaten educated and actually smarter than Trump, a version of Trump. And he's called for a general election in order to drum up a popular, or to prove that there's a popular mandate to have this no-deal exit, right? Uh, and everyone else in parliament thinks this is a disaster. Tories are defecting. Boris Johnson is kicking Tories out of the party for defecting and 
and siding with the Labor Party. And the Labor Party is saying, no, you're not going to get your general election until you pass legislation that makes it so that we don't hit, hit this But no, no, deadline. it's the Liberal Dems that are the anti-Brexit party. Labor is right. trying to have it both ways. It's oh. one of the problems. Uh-huh. And, and the other th- move that Johnson took was proroguing Parliament, which is to suspend Parliament, yeah. which is a thing that happens when a Parliament is going to shut down and a new one's going to be elected. It's suspended. But it's usually for a week. 10 days and he's suspending parliament for five weeks with had the to go blessing ask, of the queen had to go ask the queen for permission but she had to give it she's a constitutional monarch he's the government she has to do what he asks and basically making it impossible for parliament to have enough time to negotiate a different deal or block the hard exit if they want so an election has been called yeah. but Johnson in calling the election can set it for October 14th for the vote right. but then he can he can move the date back to after the hard Brexit after the 31st, just schedule the election, say, I'll do it on the 14th of October, but then do it on the 7th of November. That's why it's within his power. Yeah, it it is such a a calamity, such a shit show. And let's not forget that the same sort of uh, Russian election rigging, there was Russian money backing the Brexit vote because Russia wants to do harm to all Western institutions, NATO and the European Union. Mm -hmm. And Russia pushed this uh, and Boris Johnson and others supported it. David Cameron was foolish enough to to, to schedule it. He thought, he was a former prime minister, he thought by allowing a vote on this it would set Euroscepticism to rest forever because of course the majority of people would vote to stay in the European Union. It didn't work out that way. And this is just a this is the attack on the institutions of the West that have eminent, that has been authored by by Putin and Russia, and it was the trial run for the 2016 elections here. If you are still a little confused, sometimes analogies to American politics help. So the the thing that I've been reading a few people uh, saying about what's gone on in London in the last few days is it's an example of conservatives in parliament which is you know the british congress more or less standing up to a conservative leader who has terrible terrible ideas and is going to do the country harm they are putting country over party and risking as dan said expulsion from their own party and the inability to stand for election again to side with the more liberal members of parliament and block this crazy train that Boris is driving. Compare the actions of these 21 conservative uh, members of parliament with, you know, those mewling couple of Republican senators who are like, I disapprove of this and I'm not running for re-election and I'm very, I'm having another sad, but voted and for everything Trump wanted right. in the Senate, voted for every judicial choice he made, could have blocked up his entire judicial uh, slate of candidates, could have stopped that to force Trump to back off his other attacks on our democratic institutions, didn't. Not a single profile in courage, but you have these 21 conservative members of parliament who basically pour gasoline on themselves and set themselves on fire. They've ended their political careers by taking a stand against Johnson and what he's doing. And we have no Republican in maybe Amish that one member of Congress has comparable uh, guts and, and ethics and a moral compass, but no others and not one in the Senate. It's almost as if this country doesn't have a blood level fear, fear of a dictator coming in and bombing their entire city. <laughs> <laughs> and that's some over on the other side of the pond might. It's almost <laughs> as if Britain is showing America how to stand up to a tyrannical, monarchical kind of uh, leader. Britain and Hong Kong. And Hong Kong. All right. Next... We are going to talk about Mitch McConnell. It's back to school time, Rich. That's right. Apples, pencils, September. And clean 
teeth. That's right. You can't go back to school with a dirty mouth. Mm -mm. So why not get in the habit of having a powerful brush delivered to your door on a dentist-recommended schedule? I am talking, of course, about the Quip toothbrush with its timed sonic vibrations that cover the basics of every part of your mouth and takes just two minutes to do so. It's got a mirror mount that puts brushing front and center in your bathroom so you can't miss it. You'll remember to bookend your day using your new brush and the lightweight compact design means you can bring it along with you on those first days of school and brush quietly in the bathroom if you need to. So enjoy easing in, then ease back into the swing of things this September with a clean smile and quip. Quip is effective and gentle on your sensitive gums. The built-in two-minute timer pulses every 30 seconds to remind you when to switch sides and help you clean your whole mouth evenly. It's a little-known fact that 75% of us use old worn-out bristles that are ineffective, but not you, Rich. Because we use Quip, which automatically delivers new brush heads on a dentist-recommended schedule every three months for just $5, a friendly reminder when it's time for a refresh and to stay committed to your oral health. You got to keep a fresh tip. Can't argue with that. That's why everyone loves Quip and why it's perfect for getting back into a routine. Quip starts at just $25. And if you go to getquip.com slash Flabbermouth, right now you can get your first refill pack for free. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash Blabbermouth. Katie Hertzog, hello. Hello, Eli. Welcome back. Sorry, but we have to talk about Mitch McConnell. Uh. We don't have to do anything. Try and make us talk about Mitch McConnell, Eli. We're going to be sitting here silently in protest for the next 30 minutes. (laughs) That's fine. Not 30 minutes. Definitely won't be 30 minutes. More like 30 seconds because this, like a lot of other things, is just kind of a rerun of a show that you can't bear to watch anymore. The headlines are McConnell vows to bring up gun legislation now that Congress is back as long as Trump backs it. And Trump kind of says... You know, when he actually says anything, oh, maybe, but, you know, Congress has to be supportive of it. He also says one day that he's going to do background checks and another day he says that he's not. But after the last mass shooting in Texas, he literally walked up to Mark and said, this doesn't change anything. Right. I mean, he's right. It never does change no, it anything. Does, it doesn't it change hasn't anything. changed anything for the last 20 years. So that's going on. And if you want common sense gun regulation in this country wouldn't hurt to let mitch mcconnell know it because he is the one in charge the democrats have but passed no, 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 no. it wouldn't hurt to let mitch mcconnell doesn't care what you think if you want <laughs> to do something about mitch mcconnell if you want to do something about the senate send some money to the democratic senatorial campaign committee and help dems retake the senate that's the only way to to, to get a message across to mitch mcconnell Who also this week said that, uh, of course, if there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court in the election year, they're going to fill it after Mm -hmm. saying, after establishing the McConnell rule last time, blocking Merrick Garland from even getting a hearing because the American public had to vote on the next president for for Congress to know who they could put on the Supreme Court. And just the the raw exercise of power by McConnell. I hope Democrats take as a model. I hope when Democrats get back into power, they don't revert to acting like they're in D.C. and they have power to set a good example for Republicans who are going to burn it all down when they have power. Yeah. Also, the ghoulishness and the just like willingness to harm the country for another, you know, Supreme Court notch on Mitch McConnell's wall or whatever. If he can get three Supreme Court justices, that's his dream. And the ghoulishness is they're all 
hoping Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. I think they should right. stop taking the cancer out of her because I think the cancer may be the only thing holding her together at this point. <laughs> like sometimes mold holds a building together and you take the mold out and it collapses. It's her duct tape. Yeah. But when you talk about why are conservatives in America not doing like the conservatives in Britain and acting in the interests of the country, standing up to Trump's worst impulses and so on, here I think is the answer. They are just waiting for Ruth Bader Ginsburg to die so they can ram through another Supreme Court justice because they see that as a way of holding power after they lose the Senate and the White House potentially in 2020. Bitch is not allowed to die. The simple as that. Hold on, Ruth. Moving on to a totally different realm of controversy. Katie, you have gotten into, I guess it's a cancel controversy Mm -hmm. over a film called Adam. Yeah. So this is a film that was, uh, it's in limited release across the U.S., just came out a couple weeks ago. Um, But before the film was made, even a year before the film was out, uh, there were petitions and sort of um, the sort of typical cancel culture stuff, online um, chatter, lots of heat directed at this film. So the film is made by a trans guy named Reese Ernst. And it's about, it's it's based on a a 2014 novel um, by Errol Schrag. And it's about sort of to simplify it. It's about a teenage boy, a cis kid who pretends to be trans and he doesn't do this sort of out of a malicious intent. He moves to New York. He's sort of this it's set in 2006 before the trans tipping point. Um, and so he's sort of unfamiliar with this culture. He his older sister's a lesbian and he moves to New York to live with her for a summer and he meets a girl. He likes her. He like is hanging out with his older sister in all these queer spaces. And that he gets her phone number, and then she says, "By the way, I've never dated a trans guy before." So and he doesn't pretend to be trans. He's right. mistaken. He's mistaken. Yeah, he doesn't, doesn't correct the mistake. He doesn't correct the mistake, and he almost doesn't even know what that means at the time. Um, and so this predictably caused a huge shitstorm. Um, and so there's lots of attempts to get this movie, lit- like both metaphorically and literally canceled. There were it's being it's been premiered at um, gay and lesbian film festivals across the country. Lots of protests, lots of boycotts. What is but lots of critical praise before the basically the descriptions of the plot, the bare bone summaries of the plot that made it seem outrageous came out without any of the context of the actual film and how they handle how the filmmaker and the the screenwriter handles. But what is the controversy that that this person is misgendered? He pretends he allows this person to assume he's trans and then has sex with her. Ah. Okay. Under this false assumption, right? It's and, and it's more complicated than that. Yeah. I mean, the sex scenes are it's it's less rapey than you would think by that sort of description of it. But basically, the director was like widely accused of being transphobic before the film came out. The advocate called it dangerous, um, and so I happen to know the director. Uh, his uh, again, his name's Reese Ernst. And so when I sort of saw this happening, I was really surprised because Reese is sort of a woke trans dude and maybe the last person I would have expected to get canceled. And yet this happened. Um, so I interviewed Reese recently. Uh, recently, I guest hosted the Gist, a podcast from Slate, and so we had a really sort of fascinating conversation. Moving on up to a real podcast. <laughs> yeah, real, there is another podcast. Oddly, I didn't know about it, but there is another podcast in this world. Um, so I interviewed Reese, and he had a sort of a, a lot of uh, interesting insight on this phenomenon and, and what it's like when you know cancel culture comes for your work um, before your work is even out. And Reese, for the record, he has he was a producer on Transparent. He has sort of made his career casting trans people and trying to make Hollywood a a more accessible place for trans people. So what does he say? 
a lot. <laughs> you can go listen to it at the gist or read, a, read about it on uh, thestranger.com slash talk. Um, his sort of take on this is a lot like my take on this on this sort of moment that we're in, which is that outrage is spinning this. Like the fact that people were so mad about this movie before it came out is really interesting because the response, as, as Reese told me, the response to the film from audiences is vastly different from the response online. So when people see the movie, they see that it's sort of this nuanced take. It's not transphobic, but people are refusing to see it because it's been called transphobic. So it's this like crazy catch 22. We went through this with call me by your name where there was uh, online protest, not as loud or I think or successful, but it was really worrisome to the the film's producers who I happen to know vaguely socially because I talked to them about it. Um, but there was a campaign to get that film banned, to get it canceled because of the depiction of what people said was statutory rape that uh, Timothy Chalamet's character and Armie Hammy's character were so far apart in age. Timothy Chalamet was obviously a minor. Um, it didn't matter that the kid was above the age of consent in Italy at the time when the film was set and that a lot of young gay men's experience, particularly at that stage when other kids your own age weren't out yet or you weren't out yet, was with older out folks um, or not out folks in the case of Armie Hammond's character. Uh, and there was this attempt to like pillory the film, shut it down based on this bare bones sort of one element of the plot, the age difference between these two characters that was ultimately unsuccessful. Right. And, and now there's going to be a sequel. Right. And in, oh, is there? Yeah. Uh, they, what, like set in like what? Two, 20, 2070 or something uh, like that? I don't know. Like I think it's set in the Big Little Lies universe. Who the <laughs> fuck knows? Are these sequels to things that don't need sequels? That is are true. Me fucking crazy. Yeah. So um, as with uh, Call Me By Your Name, there is this sort of element of people being pissed off about history that really happened. Like in Call Me By Your Name, this sort of, as Dan said, this it, it is real life that young men have sex with older men. You know, Dan's talked about this. In then and now. Yeah, then and now, yeah. And then so in uh, Adam, which is set in 2006, one of the things that really pissed people off is that the, the, the main female character identifies as a lesbian and she dates a trans guy. And so by our sort of 2019 perspective of what transness is, that's offensive because a lesbian would never date a trans man because that's, that would, that, that it perpetuates the idea that trans men aren't real men. However, that's reality. It's like, especially in 2006, New York, you know, queer scene, it was extremely common for lesbians to date trans men. Reese was one of them. Even now, the numbers yeah. of uh, women, of lesbians, who are one half of a lesbian couple whose partner transitions to male, who stay in the relationship, that's just very, very common, a very common dynamic. So there, there's just this like performative outrage. You know, yeah. there's not enough films about the trans experience of trans people. Along comes a film that's complicated about the trans experience and a certain sort of slice of it. It does center a cis white male, whatever. And there's this outrage about it, this attempt to reject it uh, on, that that is makes no sense if you've actually seen the film. Yeah, Reese said that he, you know, he said that the the first sort of wave of of films after this sort of what he called the trans tipping point, we were in the affirmational stage and now he wants to see us moving into sort of this the stage where you can have messy complicated real characters. Which so is if you want to see Adam and actually make up your mind for yourself about whether you should be outraged or not or whether this film is actually dangerous where can you see it? Well, so it's in L.A., it's in New York, it's in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, a couple different places. It, it's coming to Seattle at some point, so it's not in wide release yet, but I'm sure it'll be released on all major streaming platforms at some point. Um, and we'll see, you know, in six months, the story of this film could be very different than it was a year before it was actually made when people were pissed about it preemptively. And so well cast, like they turned the world upside down to find 
the white cis male teenage actor who in the right context, you know, put him in a lesbian bar in 2006, the assumption would be trans guy. Right, right. And it's so real. I mean, it really does capture like there's this scene where there's an Elward watching party, which really happened. That was really I was a young lesbian in 2006. And that was such a real part so of our lives. Those right. days. Well, <laughs> nobody had showtime. So everybody would go to the one person's house who had showtime and watch this thing. It was just like the, it does capture the zeitgeist of that moment really well. But 13 years later, it seems problematic. Well, and it has not actually been canceled. As no. you said, you can go and watch it and it'll be out on streaming platforms. So the movie, again, is Adam by director... Reese Ernst. Kitty, thanks. Thank you. Dan, thank you. Thanks. Sheets, Rich, mm-hmm. are best when they're pure. At least in my opinion. I, you know, I'm going to let you run with this. I mean, I don't know what you think or what you do with your sheets, but... If you can get a 100% pure organic cotton sheet, you got to do it. Yeah, I agree. That's why Bowl and Branch makes everything, its bedding, its blankets, all of it from 100% pure organic cotton, which means the sheets start out super soft and they get even softer over time. You buy directly from Bowl and Branch, so you're essentially paying wholesale prices. Luxury sheets can cost up to $1,000 in the store. But Bowl and Branch sheets are only a couple hundred bucks. Everyone who tries Bowl and Branch sheets loves them. That's why they have thousands of five star reviews. And Forbes, The Wall Street Journal, and Fast Company are all talking about Bowl and Branch. Shipping is free, and you can try them for 30 nights. If you don't love them, send them back for a refund. But we doubt you'll want to send them back. There's no risk and no reason to not give them a try. To get you started right now, Blabbermouth listeners get $50 off your first set of sheets at bowlandbranch.com promo code. Blabbermouth. Go to bowlandbranch.com today for $50 off your first set of sheets. That's B-O-L-L and branch.com promo code. It's Blabbermouth. Bowlandbranch.com promo code. Blabbermouth. Jasmine Kamek, hello. Hi, Eli. Charles Mudede, hello. Hello. How are you doing? I do well. <laughs> Good to have you here as yeah. always. We all watched, or in my case, watched part of a Netflix documentary called American Factory that a lot of people are talking about and was produced by Barack and Michelle Obama. Right. Um, So in May of last year, Netflix announced a new partnership with Barack and Michelle Obama's production company, Higher Ground, uh, for a multi-year, multi-million dollar deal to produce films, uh, both scripted, unscripted, docu-series, documentaries. They're like producing something about Frederick Douglass, uh, like a, a show. Um, and so they kind of are trying to spin themselves as storytellers, right? So they um, they think that this production arm is going to be another kind of way to bring stories to light, just like their politics did. Uh, and so their first release with Netflix is called American Factory. I debuted last month, I believe. Um, and it tells the story of a Chinese-owned factory in Ohio. Um, the plant had previously shut down. Uh, it was run by GM. Uh, thousands of people were out of work until um, this glass, this automotive glass company called Fuyao reopened the factory. Um, and they're based in China. Um, and they brought some 200 workers over. Um, to kind of help integrate and run the factory. And the documentary kind of highlights uh, in the beginning the optimism between, you know, bringing these two cultures together that are often seen as being very antagonistic. Uh, And then it kind of 
devolves uh, from there where the American workers and the Chinese workers clash over, um, you know, philosophies on how, how work should be done mm-hmm. um, and how workers should be supported by management. We were talking in the last segment about the interest or appetite for complex stories. Right. This is a really complex it's very, story. Very not black and white, um, very gray, very interesting. Really interesting. The Chinese workers who are brought over to train the American workers are pretty, uh, they have a dim view of the capacity of the American workers and the American workers who are now working for this Chinese company for half of what GM was paying them in the shuttered factory are just happy to have a job, at least at first. Charles, you love this movie. Yeah, yeah, for a number of reasons. I mean, you couldn't find a more timely film. Um, I know that it was probably produced before, um, probably around the time that that uh, Trump was elected. And uh, But there was like this whole, there was this, like you know, situation is now shifted in the USA where, we're in direct conflict with China mm-hmm. um, in terms of trade, a trade war, and this film sort of um, sort of pops up and looks at the uh, not just the, the relationship between China and, and the U.S., but um, but also in a sort of macro way, but also just the details of how um, em, you know employment is coordinated um, between you know um, the differences. Right mm-hmm. in the U.S. and and the and China and the really fascinating thing in the film that really uh, that I found was that the workers are coming out of a a sort of um, union tradition. Mm-hmm. Right. right, they were they were used to um, you know um, being at odds with management, right, and finding ways to make sure that their pay uh, matched. Um, um, uh, uh, prices, right? mm-hmm. uh, uh, just you know, the inflation, the, what they call the escalator um, effect, where you you know you you make sure that wages um, 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 are are equal to um, price rises, right? In the, in the economy, now, these are the American workers. These are the American workers, and you'd think that them coming from this sort of capitalist society would be less right would be would be would 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 be less socialistic if i can put it that way mm-hmm. than the chinese and yet they are more socialistic than the chinese workers who are coming out of a kind a society that claims to be still communist right, right. that's really interesting and in the it, at least in the portion of the movie that i've seen so far the chinese uh, workers are really the chairman that's of right. the company are the most uh, voracious capitalists you've ever was, I mean, yes. like hard work. They work 12 hours a day. Yes. Um, they see their family once or twice a year. Um, and they, they, they characterize the Americans as being lazy, right? Um, not very fast. Um, pudgy and, fingers. Yeah, pudgy, pudgy fingers. fingers I know. They, they have these scenes where, um, <laughs> you know, the Chinese executives are explaining to all these Chinese workers, you know, Americans. Um, they are very confident. They're almost overconfident, right? And trying to explain how to approach in a relationship with an American because we're these loud, very direct kind of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that that's really interesting. And I, I think there's actually a... This sounds kind of dark and dim, but there's this weird humor to the film. Um, the, the filmmakers were allowed kind of unprecedented access to these people. Um, and they really fleshed out the relationships that they had with one another, um, 
And it, it almost that sometimes like the ridiculousness between these cultures coming together, it reminded me of like a British political comedy, you know, where the chairman, he's he's coming through and he's, you know, speaking through his translators that a garage door that was built does not like can't go there, then it needs to face another side. And it doesn't matter if it costs, you know, $35,000 to change and trying to move the uh, fire alarms like lower and out of sight when it's like a regulated type of uh, thing. And um, at one point, the American executives go to China <laughs> and they, they, they're at this dinner where there's for the the company Fu Yao and there's these giant dance numbers that talk about efficiency and how they're the ba- the best glass company and they're just kind of sitting there dazed and one of them cries because they're like the world is so big and you know but we're really all the same and but they're just talking about a glass company right <laughs> um and and so i i think that the film did a really good job at putting a face on this idea of Chinese foreign investment in America, um, that it's not just this one monolith where it's all about profit. Um, I do think that the workers' lives, the Chinese workers' lives, were illuminated in a way where, I mean, they miss their family, you know. Um, they And some of the reaction in China from people has been, you know, maybe Americans might kind of have a point, right? There's yeah. a little bit of sympathy that they have towards their endeavor. Well, the um, Chinese workers from our perspective are far more exploited than the American workers. Right. And there's this kind of, I think for the American audience, this intrigue and mystery of, of like, okay, well, wait, clearly what the film shows is that the Chinese are quote unquote beating us at the capitalism game because here they come to invest in, you know, downtrodden Ohio where the plant is closed and, and save these workers by offering them jobs. But at what cost to the Chinese, Mm -hmm. you know, have they risen to this spot in the global capitalist hierarchy? They, they are, like you said, way overworked, can't see their family working in dangerous conditions. Yeah. Yeah. Very dangerous conditions. The film shows, um, what do we think about what conservatives would probably call the hand of Obama in this movie? I mean, when I watch it, I see what I've watched so far, a really clear rebuke of the simplicity with which Trump talks about winning against China and uh, just a rebuke of the idea that we even are winning. You know, it's weird because, um, to, uh, you know, there were two approaches to China, um, um, in terms of like a geopolitical approaches, because of course China is um, is the second largest economy in the world. I would call it the largest economy in the world um, for a number of reasons, but I'm not going to go into them. But it is, it is it is it's considered you know. So you have the you have, you have the, the the two countries. You have two countries uh, that are leading the world economy, and um, and there was sort of a question as to like how does um, the U.S. maintain its position. Right as the as the top as the top capitalist society, and um, um, Obama had an approach which was to um, create a kind of free trade agreement with countries close to uh, or surrounding China, and and thereby ex- and exclude China, right, and thereby create an economic block that would be competitive with China. That was his approach, and the Republicans, some Republicans were for it, but at the end, um, it was I think it was called TTP. Mm-hmm. Was uh, was was shot down, and it didn't. It wasn't realized. The Trans Pacific Partnership. Partnership, and Trump shut it down permanently. Mm-hmm. And it was a part of his promise, campaign promise to do so. But what he did was a second approach. There's there's three approaches, right? You can do. You could do this one, um, the Obama way, 
you know, or you could do the Trump way, which is just to go head on head with, with China, which is, of course, um, not going to be successful for the United States of America, because the question is how, how which society can take the suffering the most. <laughs> that's, that's, that's what it comes down to. Right. And you watch a film like American Factory, you're like, OK, the Chinese can take a lot more beating than the American workers can. Right. Uh-huh. Um, if prices go up because of the tariffs and stuff like that, you get the sense that, you know, the, the, the political stability of China would, would outlast. Right that of the United States under, uh-huh. under, under, under that kind of pressure. And then, so there's only one other, only one, so that's the, that's the third one. That's the second one. The third one is just sheer war, right, which, is, which has been considered. There's some who saw particularly um, the war with Iran, Iraq, as a, as, a, as a proxy to the war with China. And the reason why is because um, Rummy, Rumsfeld, Wanted it, wanted <laughs> almost. Rummy. Yeah, Rummy. It was a did, blast from the past. Right, did not want troops on the ground. He wanted to, he believed that they could win that war with just technology and a few troops. And that proved to be a disaster. Um, if you remember John McCain and others said, you got to put troops on the ground. And everybody said, you know, the, the, the thinking in, in, in foreign policy circles was that if you put troops on the ground and then, you know, and finally take control of that situation, China could do that. Mm-hmm. China, so you're, you're saying that, you know what I mean? That, so, so ultimately, the foot, the foot soldiers meant that you, you, you're not going to win versus China in a direct confrontation. Hmm. So the war scenario has been sort of placed at, at the back end. And right. now we have the trade war, now which the trade is war. not going well. Although Trump says it's going great, no, it's, <laughs> going, it's going terrible, terribly. And then, then the second one, so the the best one, it seems, um, would have been the Trans-Pacific Partnership. <laughs> Partnership. But which, as which? we all know, anything that had Obama's name attached to it has to be, uh, has to. you know, literally or metaphorically peed on right. to go back to the right. rumor but, about you know, Trump. The, 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 there was a story that came out that Japan was now going to buy American farm products, and um, and Trump was celebrating that, saying, came back saying that, yeah, you see, it's working, and I mean, I'll be able to, you know, keep the farmers and in, in, in his, uh, uh, you know, his voters, right, basically happy. But that was a part of TTP, so it was just like, no, that was already Obama was going to do that anyway. Right. So this is so we're basically we, we, we're we're slowly shifting back to the TTP. Um, um, it, it seems like there is no other solution except maybe a peaceful. I don't know. You have mm. to watch. You have to watch this documentary, and you, I think because this also was watched by the Chinese, and they also saw a part of the United States. That, that, so there, there's a lot of discussion in China yeah. about the film as well. Though it's, it's banned there, so <laughs> but people are watching oh, it yeah, anyway. Really. Yes, which is a sign of, like you said, how good it is. What I found so refreshing about the portion that I've watched so far, and I'm, I am going to finish it, but it was. In its way, and maybe I'm, you know, imagining some of this, but the Obamas are connected to it. And it is like going back into that world that we all miss where, you know, the world is presented in a way that is closer to what it really is, which is complex and full of truths, but also, uh, you know, different versions of truths, depending on which vantage point you're standing from. And that's okay. 
if we can show them all and then come to some sort of deeper understanding. And it has that quality that uh, Obama got criticized for, that professorial, you know, turning the prism from a whole bunch of different directions and pondering what all the different uh, views through the prism mean. Right. But that's interesting and it's it's valuable. Yeah, it's not interesting. It is interesting and it's valuable. And I think that, you know, all these kind of complex discussions around trade and – are really accessible through, you know, this different situations that arise within this film. So the film again is American factory. It's on Netflix conspiracy theorists in the Facebook group. We are not getting paid for this streaming. No HBO bucks right now. (laughs) No Netflix bucks. No nothing. By the way, the the best thing in that movie was the Chinese workers when they visit an American who has guns. Oh yeah. (laughs) We'll leave that. As a cliffhanger, but you do need to watch and see what the Chinese make of the American factory workers' guns. Jasmine, thank you. Thanks, Eli. Charles, thank you. Okay, thank you, Eli. And that's the show. If you've got something you want to say to Dan Savage, Rich Smith, Katie Herzog, Jasmine Koenig, or Charles Mudede, call the Blabberphone, 206-302-2063, or dive on into our Blabbermouth podcast Facebook group. Thanks, as always, to Ahmed Filet J. Alua for making the music we use in the show each week, and to Nancy Hartunian for bringing our blabbering mouths to your ears. <laughs>